Amen. Whew. That was moving and meaningful. Amen. Acts chapter 26 tonight. We have just a couple more chapters to go in our study of the book of Acts. Looking at how the Spirit transformed the lives of the early church and how the gospel spread throughout the nations of the world. I want to remind us, Paul has been standing before Roman officials like Felix and Festus. Tonight he's going to be standing before King Agrippa of the Jews. And I want to remind us too that when he was standing before Festus, Festus was at a loss as to how to handle Paul. Because Paul had appealed to Caesar to go to Rome. And I believe it was not just for his own sake, but for the sake of the entire early church. He thought he would receive more justice in Rome than he would with his own people. And yet, Festus had this dilemma. How can I send this prisoner to Rome if I have no evidence of a crime that he's committed? That's absurd. So he sort of passes him off onto Agrippa, hoping that maybe Agrippa can come up with something before they send Paul off to Rome so that they have something to say to the Roman officials in Rome about what this guy's crime is and that he's deserving of the charges that are against him. So that's where we pick it up in chapter 26. And I want to start in verse 2 with the phrase that I started tonight with before we even had our time of worship. In the middle of verse 2, Paul is speaking to King Agrippa, and he says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that I am about to make my defense before you today. Again, the word considered means to come first in priority, to be what is preeminent in one's mind or the leading thought of one's mind. And Paul then says, here's what is the leading thought of my mind, that I am fortunate, I am blessed, I am highly favored, I am in a most enviable position. Because notice how Paul then defines his blessing and favor from the Lord, that I am about to make my defense before you today. If you take nothing else away from the message tonight, take this thought. Paul is viewing life opportunistically, not circumstantially. We all should live that way. Paul is viewing life opportunistically, not circumstantially. Circumstantially. Here's what Paul's been dealing with. He's been beaten. He's been left for dead. There is a plot to kill him by the Jews. He is a prisoner. I mean, he's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been left for dead. And yet Paul 
stands before King Agrippa and says, King Agrippa, the leading thought of my mind is that I am blessed and highly favored. I am in a most enviable position. Why? Because Paul's not viewing life circumstantially. Paul's viewing life opportunistically. He is struck by the opportunities that God is giving him in his life to be able to be a witness to the reality of his God. And it doesn't matter what Paul has to go through, what circumstances, because the circumstances are subservient to the opportunities. In in a sense, Paul is saying to us, this should be all of our mindsets. If God calls me to suffer, but it gives me an opportunity to be a witness to the reality and sufficiency of God, then that's a great, I'm blessed. If I have to go through something in this life that is painful, a a great trial, tribulation, but if it gives me an opportunity to share the reality and the sufficiency of my God. I am blessed and highly favored. I'm in a most enviable position because God is entrusting me with said position. We should look at life the same way. I mean, that's the goal. I know all of us, we can get ourselves into situations and, you know, cry out to God, God, why me? But we need to start as we grow in the Lord to start looking at it, why not me? And how blessed it is to be me. Because maybe God has me going through this so that like Paul, I'm in a most enviable position to be able to witness and to share my faith with those around me as I go through what I'm going through. And that's, something that is so significant. I I wanted to start our service with that, and I wanted to start the message with that tonight. Because those four words of Paul, I consider myself fortunate, just leapt off the page at me. And God has sort of continued to burn those words and engrave those words upon my own heart and mind. I want to wake up every day and have the leading thought of my mind be how blessed and highly favored I am. That I get to do what I get to do. And no matter what my life has to deal with, the fact that I'm in a position at all times to be able to be a light for God, a light unto others, what, a, what an opportunity we have. Because we even sung about that, and that's what the second half of the chapter is all about. In fact, I'm getting a little disjointed here tonight, but if you go over to chapter 26, verse 23, for just a moment, notice that Paul here is testifying again to Agrippa, saying that the Christ was to suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he was going to, as the light of the world, proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus brought light into the world. And in verse 13, Paul testifies, I saw the light. 
In verse 26, he's saying, and God's purpose for my life was to send me to the Gentiles because they need the light so that their eyes can be open and turn from darkness to light. But as he's sharing the gospel with King Agrippa, in verse 27 and 28, Agrippa rejects the light. So we'll talk more about that as we get to the second half of the chapter, but let's go back now and pick it up in verse 1. Paul is standing before King Agrippa, and Agrippa says, Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul held out his hand and began his defense. And again, this defense is a defense of the reality of God. That there is a God, that he really exists, that I know him, I have a personal relationship, I met him on the road to Damascus. He is real. His word is trustworthy. I mean, on and on we could go. God wants us to live again in that light too. Set apart Christ Jesus as Lord, 1 Peter 3.15, and always be ready to give an answer, a defense, to everyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Our lives, in a sense, every moment that we live is a defense of the reality of God. If God is in our life, then our life should look different and distinct from other people's lives that don't have God in their life. And that everything you and I go through, everything that we touch should be a defense, if you will, or a witness to, or a testimony to the reality of God. Another thing we need to mention is that this word defense speaks about not only what we believe, but why we believe it. We all need to come to that place in our Christian life where we're not just accumulating facts and saying, yeah, I believe that, but truly knowing why do I believe that? Because when we know why we believe something, that's where our convictions and our confidence, our surety, our certainty comes from. And hopefully most of the time it's I can go back to the word of God and I can say, this is where I got that from. Because this is true. And this is why I believe what I believe. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. So verse 2, regarding all the things I have been accused of by the Jews, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that I am about to make my defense before you today because you are especially familiar thoroughly acquainted with all the customs and controversial issues of the Jews. Paul considers that uh, an act of God's providence or sovereignty that he is before King Agrippa because he doesn't have to sort of try to explain all these things. He knows that King Agrippa has a handle on all the things that he's going to talk about, all the customs of the Jews and all the, the, the ways the Jews think and what they believe and all of that. Therefore, though, notice what Paul says at the end of verse 3. I ask you, King Agrippa, pay attention or listen to me patiently. patiently. Why is he calling upon King Agrippa to pay close attention to what he's saying? Because he knows King Agrippa does not have faith in Jesus yet. 
And this is not just him defending himself to try to get himself off of these charges. Again, that's not the way Paul's looking at this. He's looking at standing before King Agrippa not as an opportunity for him to be released as a prisoner, but an opportunity for this man that he's standing before to get saved. Think about that. That's a whole different perspective, you see. That's a whole different way to look at this situation. And Paul, in a sense, is saying, King Agrippa, I need you to pay close attention because your eternal soul is in the balance here. And obviously, we know later on, at least at this time, King Agrippa rejected the light that God was giving him through Paul. So he says in verse 4, Now all the Jews know the way I live for my youth. Again, the providence of God. Paul, Saul, the Pharisee, was very well known. So everybody knew who Saul was, what he was about, and all that. His life was, as we say, an open book, which actually then makes the transformation that God brought into his life that much more impactful. Because everybody knew, well, Saul was like this, and we all know it. And that's what Saul's recounting here. He says, verse 5, they know because they've known me from time past. They knew me from a little child all the way up through my adulthood. They knew that I was part of the strictest party of our religion, the Pharisees. And now, verse 6, I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our ancestors. I love that. I'm willing to stand before you, Agrippa, because I have hope that confident expectation and anticipation of what I know God has promised that's coming to all of us in the future who believe in it. Now, I want to show you a contrast here, though. In verse 7, the word hope is used as well, but it's a different word. And notice the difference. Paul says, verse 6, I have hope, because my hope is, notice, in the promise made by God. That's, that's huge. That's key. Again, why do we have hope? Because our hope is based upon the promise of God. But notice what he says about the other Jews. The 12 tribes generalizing the Jewish nation, their hope is to attain this hope, a hope that they want to reach rather than receive and rest in. So they're serving God day and night, trying to gain this hope. See the difference and the contrast? Paul doesn't have to work for this hope or reach this hope or attain this hope, all he has to do like us is rest in it and receive it because it's found in the promises of God. The Jews, for the most part, hadn't come there yet. They still thought hope was something that they had to work for, reach for, attain. No, no. 
Hope is something I rest in and, and rely in because it's based on the word of God. Are we resting in the promises that God has made? Are we receiving the hope that comes through the promises that God has made? And then, finally, are we standing in our day up for the Lord in whose promises we are standing? Verse 8, I love this. Then he says to King Agrippa, why do you people, so he's not just addressing King Agrippa, he knows there's many others there in this hall while he's making his defense, who's listening to him. Why do you people think it's unbelievable that God raises the dead? Paul, in a sense, is challenging their view of God. Do you believe in God? Well, what kind of God do you believe in? Do you believe in such a puny, little, small God that your God couldn't do certain things? Paul, in a sense, is saying, my God is the almighty God. My God, there's nothing too hard or difficult for. Therefore, raising the dead is not a big deal to my God. And this verse, then, is a reminder to us because then it ties back into the hope that God wants to build into our life and that hope even comes from our view of God. Little hope, probably little God. Big hope, big God. Great God, like we sung about tonight. And hopefully our view, our opinion of God just continues to grow and become higher and greater as we go through life. That the longer we walk with God, the more we are living in awe and wonder of God, the more we are inspired to live reverently and respectfully concerning our God. Now Paul says, verse 9, back before his conversion, of course I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus. Because Paul didn't have a problem with the fact that his God could create the world, that his God was all-powerful. The problem that Paul had was that this guy came along, Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God and who many people were following. That's the problem Paul had. Paul, as of yet, had not made the connection that Jesus was God and to be worshipped as God. That was Paul's problem. God saw in Saul a sincerity that, that Paul lived what he believed, what his convictions were. The problem is that his conviction about Jesus Christ needed to be changed and transformed. That's what God did on the road to Damascus. God didn't really need to change anything else in Paul's theology because Paul had lived with great reverence and respect for God and actually thought that he was doing the will of God when he persecuted the church 
and went after those who named the name of Jesus. God needed to change that one aspect of Paul's thinking, if you will. And that's what he did. And notice something else, though, interestingly, that Paul says before we get to Paul seeing the light in verse 12. In verse 11, he says, I punished them, speaking of Christians, often in all the synagogues and tried to force them to blaspheme because I was so furiously enraged at them, I went to persecute them even in foreign cities. The phrase I want you to look at is the phrase so furiously enraged. Paul is saying that his pre-conversion behavior was that he was acting completely deranged. He was acting completely irrational. He was acting as a madman. And why is that significant? Why do I want to take time to talk about this tonight? Because Paul is giving us insight into the mind many times of an unbeliever. You and I as Christians, we look at the world and we go, why do they hate us so much? And why are they acting so irrational? It's like they have this, not just they don't believe in Jesus and they don't believe it, it's like they've got this anger inside of them and it, it doesn't even make sense. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Why is that the case? Because we know this in our heads, but we've got to remember this too. They're being fueled by spirits other than the Holy Spirit. You see, the, I'm, not, I'm not absolving the human being of their responsibility before God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have to understand this irrational hatred and anger that unbelievers in the world have against Jesus and have against us, the followers of Jesus, is being fueled by the demonic world and demonic spirits. That's where it's coming from. And that's what Paul is testifying to. I was mad. I was doing crazy stuff that I can't even, in a sense, explain now that I've seen the light. Why did I act that way? But then he says, while doing this very thing, huh, wow, the love of God. God loved Paul in the midst of all that Paul was doing against him. Think about that. We sung about that incredible, unconditional love tonight. Again, blessed and highly favored. There is never a moment in any human being's life where we're not loved by God. Think about that. God always loves. And, and listen, God doesn't love because that's what he does. The Bible says God is love. Meaning, everything that God does is love because that's his nature. It's impossible for him not to love. That's who he is. So it goes even beyond saying God does loving things. No, no. God is love. Everything God does and is, if you will, is because he's love. 
And you see that even in the conversion of Paul. You see that in our conversion. You see it in everything that you and I are a part of. We're never not loved by God. He was going to Damascus, going to do the same thing in Damascus that he had done everywhere else. And about noon along the road, your majesty, I saw a light from heaven. Thank the Lord. I saw the light. I saw the light. Aren't you glad you saw the light one day? That that light broke in and all of a sudden it was like, oh my goodness, open my eyes that I may see. And our eyes were open to God and to his love for us. It was brighter than the sun, Paul says, shining everywhere around me and those traveling with me. Notice, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice in verse 14, a principle that God will use in our life as he did in Paul's life. God has to bring Paul down before he can raise him up. He has to knock Paul down to the ground because Paul was pretty prideful. Paul needed to be humbled. You and I need to be humble. But when we humble ourselves before God, James says God will exalt us in due time. But it's God who is doing the exalting, not us or someone else. And God always works that way. Because God's goal is not to bring us down. God's goal is to raise us up so that we can be a more conspicuous light for him, which is exactly what he's done with Paul. So that now Paul is standing before Roman officials and kings and leaders of, of the Roman Empire. But Paul first had to go down before he went then Jesus says to him, you are hurting yourself, kicking against the goads. Interesting phrase. Of course, the goad was a shepherd's instrument used to sort of poke and guide the sheep to get them to go in the right direction or down the right path. So Jesus here is reminding us again of a very important principle, and that is the pre-salvational work of God in anyone's life. In a sense, he's saying, Paul, I've been goading you for a while. And you keep resisting my attempts to get your attention. And it's hard. Now, we would say today, we would use a little bit of a different phrase. We would say, knocking our heads against the wall. Or beating our heads against the wall. That's what Jesus is saying Saul did. So, get this. We don't know how long... The goads have been coming into Saul's life before he became a Christian. But we know that it must have been for quite a while because Jesus is almost sort of implying here, you're hurting yourself so bad because you keep resisting and keep knocking your head against me trying to get you to go my way. Hopefully that never characterizes us that we're so stubborn and so hard-hearted that as God tries to move us and get us to go a certain direction, we keep fighting against it instead of surrendering and going God's way. 
Of course, the Lord replied in verse 15, I'm Jesus. Because <laughs> again, he didn't have a problem with God, with Jehovah, with the Old Testament. It was Jesus that he had a problem with. So Jesus needed to reveal himself to Saul so that Saul could have a correction in his thinking about who Jesus was. Now, for the rest of our time together, for the most part, I want to direct your attention to the words of Jesus now, because we've talked a lot about the things that Paul has said to Agrippa in his defense. Now I want us to focus on these things that Jesus says from here down through verse 19, because much of the things that Jesus said to Paul are things that Jesus would say and is saying to us throughout our life. First one, get up and stand on your feet. Yes, you were brought down, but now I need you to get up and stand. Listen, folk. The righteous may fall seven times, but they get back up every time. Proverbs 27, 17. I don't care whether you fell of your own accord or whether you got knocked down by an enemy or by the world or whatever, God doesn't want his children to stay down. He wants us to take him by the hand and get up and stand. Why? Because God is calling us to stand. Just as Paul was standing before Agrippa, giving his defense, God wants his people to stand for him to stand up for him, to stand for him, to take a stand, if you will. So that's first. Second, he says, for I have appeared to you for this reason. So there's a purpose behind this salvation, just like there's a purpose in our revelations from God and salvation. I have designated you in advance as a servant and witness to the things you have seen and to the things in which I will appear to you. God's hand was upon Paul purposefully, just as God's hand is upon us purposefully. And what does God generally call all of us as his people to? Two things, to be a servant and to be a witness to the things that he's revealing to us. So we have to ask ourselves tonight, how's our service and how's our witness? Because the two primary things that Jesus wanted us to stand up for after our salvation was to find our place of service and to serve him throughout our Christian life because we're going to be serving him throughout all of eternity and to be a witness, to be a light of the things that he has revealed to us. Notice verse 17. I will rescue you from your own people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they turn themselves from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that, two purpose statements, First of all, so that they can turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And the second purpose statement, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share or an inheritance among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Now, there's a lot there. 
The point I want to make is, again, our salvation is always with purpose. Again, that's why we say around here, salvation is not the end. It is just the beginning. We are saved with a purpose in mind. God has a plan for our Christian life, our life after we come to Christ. And generally speaking, obviously we're not talking specifically, or generally speaking, we are to be a light because people need the light of God. We need to be that light in people's lives around us so that they have their eyes open by us. How do they get their eyes open by us? By us being light to them, by us sharing light and the revelation of God to them. That's where the light comes from. It's not our light, it's God's light that he's shared with us, and then we share it with them. But when they receive that light, then they are taken from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Their sins are forgiven, and they now have an eternal inheritance just like we do. So again, it's all about witness. So Paul says, back to Paul's words, therefore, King Agrippa, verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, I was compliant. When Jesus revealed himself to me and told me what he wanted from me, I got up and did it. There's a great example. I was compliant. I stopped kicking against the goads. I stopped resisting God's will for my life. I had resisted it long enough before I became a Christian but after I became a Christian, Paul was much more compliant to the light that God gave him. And so I want to end with these verses tonight. Verse 22, and I couldn't help but think about this verse when we were singing the goodness of God. Notice what Paul says. As I went on my way doing the part that God had given to me, I have experienced help from God to this day. Wow. Paul's basically saying, God supported me, he aided me, he assisted me, he was there for me, he was never leaving me or forsaking me. We've already seen the verses where Paul says, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul is what? He's witnessing. He's testifying to the reality of his God. And he's not just saying, my God loved me so much that even in my sin, he loved me enough to send his light into my life. He loved me enough that he gave me a purpose for the rest of my life and did not punish me for my past. And then every step of the way throughout my life, living out that purpose, he was right there beside of me to give me everything that I needed, all the resources, all that I needed, all the supplies, all the provision. God helped me up until this day. Wow. Hopefully we can testify to that. That as we, as even Nicole pray, we can look back over our life 
and see the good hand of our God upon us and say, God, I have been blessed and highly favored because I have experienced your help every day up until this day. And every Christian could say that. Doesn't mean every Christian will say that. But every Christian could say that. That God helped me every single day. And so he says, I stand testifying to both small and great, saying nothing except what the prophets and Moses said was going to happen. Notice Paul says, I haven't told you anything that was my own opinion. Everything I told you, King Agrippa, has been straight from the word of God. And then he says that the Christ, the Messiah, was to suffer and be the first to rise from the dead to proclaim this light. So let's bring this to a close. Verse 27, Paul looks at Agrippa. He sees that this man's eternal soul is in the balance. He says, do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time, are you persuading me to become a Christian? If you study this in the original language, in a sense, Agrippa is sort of dissing Paul. He's saying, it's going to take a lot more than what you've just said, Paul, to convince me. I'm King Agrippa. You think you can just saunter in here and say a few words, and I'm just going to all of a sudden go, all right, Paul. No, 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 Paul, no. It's going to take a lot more than that. So I love Paul's response. He says, well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to start praying to God for your soul, King Agrippa, that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you but also all those who are listening to me today could become such as I am except for these changed. And Agrippa got up, and the day closed. What a day. I'll leave you with this. Paul stood before King Agrippa and said, I consider myself fortunate. The leading thought in Paul's mind as a prisoner of Rome, as one who had been beaten and stoned, left for dead, had a plot to kill him, was saying that the leading thought in his mind was how blessed and highly favored he was. What an enviable position he was placed in by God. Why? Because he viewed life opportunistically, not circumstantially. Many times our life will go through painful circumstances. But sometimes the greatest opportunities we have for God are in the midst of those painful circumstances. Father, we thank you tonight for reminding us, Lord, of so many truths. God, thank you for the amazing worship that we had tonight. And Lord, may we leave here tonight and even lay down tonight with our head on that pillow, falling asleep, knowing that we are blessed and highly favored. We are loved by God. We will always be loved by God. That we are your child and that, Lord, we have eternal life with you. Lord, may we become more and more aware 
of just how blessed and favored we are. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.